Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. I, um, what I'd like to do for our prayer, I'll, I'll, I'll lead a little bit of a prayer, but I also want, you know, we're always asking God for what we want. Maybe every now and again, it's good for us to ask God what he wants. And I'm going to play you just a little bit of a spiritual that, um, you know, that will help us to kind of get into that frame of mind, too. So let's uh, pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, tonight, um, I'm going to run my mouth as usual, but I do hope that something of you will come out, despite the earthen vessel that I am. So please help all of us to hear and listen. And um, with that in mind, Lord, uh, we also we often ask you for a lot of things, but perhaps tonight just a brief you know, song for us to hear what you might be asking of us. So, Lord, open our hearts to hear the words of this old spiritual, and I'm just going to play one verse of this, all right? harvest pass and die and lose your soul at last. So Lord, we're listening. We ask you then to hear all of our prayers now, even as we listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week I um, talked with you about the meaning of ashes and uh, the, 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 oh, the overarching title for this that I was asked to cover was Ashes to Ashes. So I, I, I focused on ashes. And most of you, many, how many were here last week? So, all right, a little more. Most of you. I did say then that I would speak tonight on kind of extending this theme of um, um, ex extending this theme to uh, in a more general way to life in general. And I thought I would speak on five hard truths that will set you free. Five hard truths that will set you free. Now, you may remember that some of the things that we talked about last week included things like humility, like death like the, um, the difficulties and the sufferings uh, that life imposes, our need to repent of sin and so on. So what I'm doing now tonight is I'm trying to extend this into the, some of these areas, and they're going to ask of us some humility. 
they're going to ask of us. Some repentance, by which, as I said to you last week, involves a, um, a, a coming to a new mind, to a kind of a new way of thinking. And so uh, we'll see then, and we'll certainly see the last one especially, points to the end of all things. So here are the five truths, and you've got them in your notes, but just to list them quickly. Again, life is hard. All right? Your life is not about you. You're not that important. You're not in control. <laughs> and you're going to die. <laughs> Have a nice day. Now, I call them, though, uh, five hard truths that will set you free. I borrow that from, I, it's, it's kicked around, you know, forever in the church, um, but I, I think I'd heard a, a, a talk on this many, many years ago, maybe all the way back in seminary. But I've, I've retained these and I've kind of developed uh, my own material around them, but I would simply say that these are not unique to me. I, had, I didn't make up these, these five. They've kicked around the church forever. So they're here, and uh, I'm going to be speaking out of those, all right? So with that in mind, I think I might have mentioned in your notes there, I think I originally heard a, a, a talk by a theologian named Richard Rohr. I don't have much in common with Richard Rohr. I don't think I agree with him on just about anything, but um, I happen to uh, hear it. I think that's where I originally heard these five items mentioned. So with all that in mind, let's get right into them, and I want to spend a little bit of extra time on the last one, uh, because there's some things to share with you, all right? But number one, now, when I call them, the, the, when I say to you they're going to set you free, there's something freeing about sobriety. You know, we all want life to be nice, and, you know, the world as it ought to be. It's way up here somewhere in the clouds. The world as it ought to be. Guess what? You don't get to live there. At least not yet. <laughs> you got to live down here in the world as it is. And there's something freeing about that. There is just something freeing about accepting that this life is going to have its struggles and its problems. And so, in saying that they will set you free, one of the problems that a lot of us face today is the problem of resentment. Because we have very high ideals about how pleasant and easy life should be. And when we start to accept the fact that it just isn't, well... It's kind of a freeing experience. There's an old saying in 12-step programs, but uh, it's good for any of us, that it sim simply says that expectations are premeditated resentments. Now here you might put the word unrealistic, right? But unrealistic expectations are premeditated resentments. So, boy meets girl, girl meets boy. Oh, you're the meaning of my life. We're going to get married, and it's going to be wonderful. Now, that's not necessarily an unrealistic, you know, that's, it's not a necessarily a very realistic expectation, because into every life is add mixed sufferings and joys, good things and bad things, and everyone, no matter who you marry, you know, how, never how beautiful or handsome, uh, there, there's a human being attached to that, and human beings are complicated. Hello? But you see, a lot of resentments enter in when we have unrealistic expectations. So many people want marriage to be an ideal, and if there's any ordeal, they want to look for a new deal. Right? And the problem is that they want marriage, their marriage to be ideal. Guess what? It's not going to be. I'll tell you the number one reason why your marriage is not going to be perfect, because you're in it. 
you're a sinner and you marry a sinner and the two of you try to make a go of it. Yes, the Lord goes to work. He can bring you to greater holiness. But end of the day, two sinners are trying to make a go of it. Now, that's just realistic, okay? Oh, but love will cover it all. No, it won't. It'll, it'll, um, might even intensify some of the suffering. Because frankly, I always tell this to an engaged couple. I says, the person you're sitting next to is the one in this world that can hurt you the most. Because they're the one you care about the most, you see? So love often brings greater suffering, not less. Now, I'm just asking us not to be depressed, but just to be sober. And there's something freeing about sobriety. Living in illusion and wishful thinking isn't very good at the end of the day. And it breeds resentments, and people get very angry. So with all that in mind, let's get into these with that kind of freeing quality in mind. Now, number one, life is hard. Life is hard. Now, some people say, well, I, I know that, Father. No, no, you don't. Most of us today, especially in the 21st century, are extremely insistent and adamant that life should not be hard. We have surrounded ourselves with creature comforts. And you watch how quickly we complain if the plane is 20 minutes late. Or the air conditioning doesn't work. Right? I mean, we immediately become very crestfallen and very resentful very quickly. Now, if you're an exception, bless you. I'm talking about all of us together, though. We tend, as human beings, to become very quickly complaining and resentful if something doesn't go perfectly well. We're very used to comfort, to everything going our way, and especially, though, in the 20, 20th and 21st centuries, where we have actually done a very good job of creating the illusion of comfort. I mean, you think of people that lived even just a hundred years ago. You think about it. You could, pardon, pardon me for becoming, but you could get, shall we say, an intestinal ailment and be dead in a week. If you had a headache, too bad. <laughs> if your eyesight, well, maybe not a hundred years ago, but several hundred years ago, your eyesight went bad, too bad. You know? In fact, right now I take off these glasses, I'm completely crippled. I mean, you're all just a blur. I just see shapes. Now, up until 40, I never wore glasses. Medicine, air conditioning, electricity, we expect to flip a switch and everything's there. We're very used to comfort, all right, or to the illusion of comfort. Because at the end of the day, life is going to be difficult. It is hard. We are not in heaven. Now, our ancestors prayed differently than we do. You know, Listen to how we kind of pray. Lord, fix my health, fix my finances, fix my spouse. <laughs> it, almost as if we were saying to God, Lord, just make this world a little more pleasant. Give me enough friends, enough money, enough good health, and I'll just stay here forever. Thank you. I mean, what a disgrace. We're not made for this world. We're made for God and for glory. We're, we're not made for trinkets. Now listen to our ancestors prayed. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, our hope. To Thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To Thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping 
in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thy night of mercy, and so on it goes. Do, do you hear, they had a certain sense that this world was something that, yes, it was beautiful, it had its moments, and other things being equal, we want to get here, do what we need to do, but there's a longing to get home and be with God, because this ain't it. But our, our comforts that we've established for ourselves are sufficient enough now that many of us just kind of want to stay here forever. And all we got, God, is to sort of fix a few things for us. And we've kind of lost a longing for heaven. But most of us also know, if we've been at it long enough, that all the money and all the comforts in the world, money can bring you comfort, but it really can't bring you happiness. Comfort can bring you comfort, but it can't really take away the sorrows, the losses, the grief, and the pains that can mount up in life, right? So, again, we have here a principle that suffering and difficulty are going and are part of life. They're going to be part of life and they are part of life. And that's a beautiful insight and it's a freeing insight because when they happen, we don't immediately become crestfallen and think, well, gosh, that's not right. And listen, we're living in paradise lost, right? God did offer paradise, remember? I hope you've read your Bible. So God did offer paradise. But Adam and Eve said they wanted a better deal. Welcome to the better deal. Here we are. And even God even told them, like we reviewed last week, He even said to them, listen, it's the way of suffering and death if you choose it. And knowing that, they still chose it. How could they be so stupid? Well, how could we be so stupid? Because we do the same thing. A lot of us do stuff we know that causes us harm. We know it, and yet we still do it. A lot of people know that drinking is a terrible thing. Drinking too much is a terrible thing. Or eating too much. Or having sex outside of marriage. Or just greed. Or being unforgiving. Or harsh. Or angry. Or mean. is a terrible thing. And yet we still do it. Screw loose time, huh? We're just a mess. Got to hear it rolling around up in there? But in the end of the day, somewhere along the line... Although we were offered paradise, we decided not to. And we're living in paradise lost. And God says, I need you to understand something. In this paradise lost, you are in a valley of tears. You are going to have heartaches. You are going to have crosses. You are going to have setbacks. You are going to have death. You are going to experience a lot of painful things. And yes, some good things too. But fundamentally, this is not heaven. This is something to get through. And long for the true joys that are waiting for you in heaven. But comfort creates an illusion for us moderns that in some ways our ancestors didn't have. They prayed a little bit more like, all right, Lord, help me make a way through this, but help me to get out of here as soon as possible and come home and be with you. You know, get me home safe. See, All right, so the first hard truth is that life is hard. And it's a freeing truth Accepting suffering does not mean that we have to like it. But acceptance of the fact that life can be hard sometimes means that we get less angry and less anxious when it does come. We don't lose our serenity. We accept that some suffering in our life is inevitable. It brings a strange sort of peace. We are freed from 
unrealistic expectations, and we become more grateful for the joys that we do experience. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. You know, I know that I'm going to rejoice in this because I know there are sufferings too, but thank you, Lord, for the joy, the joy. So, accepting that life can be hard is the first truth that sets us free, all right? So, I hope you kind of get the idea so far as we begin to move. Now, the second one. Not only is life hard, but your life is not about you. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. If you really want to give him a belly laugh, tell him his plans. We often like to think that we should just be able to do whatever pleases us and maximizes our own self-actualization. However, we do not decide alone what course our life will take. In this age of nobody's going to tell me what to do, it's important to be reminded that our true happiness comes not from getting what we want, but from getting what God wants for us. Right? You know, a lot of people mistake even the notion of trust. So some people will explain trust like this. Oh, don't worry, don't worry. Just keep praying. God will eventually come around to your way of doing things. God will eventually give you what you want on your terms. And a lot of people conceive of trust that way. That's not trust. Trust is, God, whatever you want, I'm okay with that. If you want me to live healthy and overcome this cancer and go on living another 15 years, I'm okay with that. If you don't and you want to call me home sooner, I'm okay with that. That's trust. God, whatever you want, I'm okay with that because I know it's what's best for me and really best for others. I might have other thoughts about it. I should go on living because I can do all these things. But if you'd say, nope, nope, that's not true, I'll accept that. I'm going to trust you, see? So trust is not... Keep praying because God will eventually give you what you want on your terms. That's not what trust is. Trust is, God, whatever you want, I'm okay with that. Even if you have a preference, you're still okay with whatever God wants, right? Now, again, true happiness comes not from getting what we want, but from getting what God wants. How many of you are actually doing what you studied in college to do? You know? I mean, you're really doing the exact same career path. You know, I studied computer science, all right? <laughs> One of my buddies that does computer security studied engineering, <laughs> you know. I had a friend who studied psychology, and uh, she's now in biochemistry, you know. You know, okay, you get the idea. We often have ideas and plans, and then our life unfolds and goes in different directions. Now, I, I studied computer science. I was dating a girl I had a, who was already employed. I was all set to go, you know, and yet then I got this strange call about priesthood, and I won't give you the whole vocation story, but let's just say here I am. You can see I eventually... But, you know, I never thought growing up I should be a priest. I never wanted to be a priest. I wanted to, you know, I joined the church choir to meet the girls, not to sing, <laughs> right? But... But even coming out of seminary, I think I had ideas about what, the, what would be the best kind of a parish for a priest like me. I came out knowing Latin and Greek and I, Thomas, and I, I had, um, you know, I had a, a, a skill in Gregorian chant, the Latin liturgy, Renaissance polyphony, I'd been a choir director. I should be in a urban parish with a paid choir and traditional liturgies. I've never had an assignment like that, not even once, all right? Now, I still say the Latin Mass, and I go around and help, but at the end of the day, God says, I know, 
I know you think that's what your, your life's about, but that's not my plan for you. And listen, if I had gone that way, I would not be the kind of man I am today. I'm so glad of what the Lord's done for me. He's opened up different worlds and better worlds in many ways. I mean, I still love all those traditional things, but I've been enriched to love other things too. And oh, how I've been enriched. I don't, I don't want to give you my whole story, but I want to just say God's been good to me. He's been good. If I had gotten what I want, my life and my world would be much smaller than it is today. All right? Part of my preaching and teaching all broke open by being with the African-American community. That is a very high standard for preaching and teaching and high expectations. And there is a, there's just a, a great sense of the faith that it has to be real. It has to be, you've got to be able to kick the tires, Father. You know, you got it. And, and so I've been challenged all these years to really bring the faith in for a landing. And I think that I'm a better man because of what I've learned. And but anyway, I, I, long story, but my life was not simply about what I want and how I wanted it and the quantity I wanted it and any of those things. That's not what my life's about. My life is about what God wants for me. I and you have a place in God's plan that no one else can take. No one else can fill your position there. God has something. You are part of God's plan. You are irreplaceable, and God knows what that part is, and He's asking you to listen and follow rather than fight and kick against Him. Now, again, our destiny then isn't to follow our star, but to follow God. True peace comes from a careful discernment of God's will for us. Now, I don't have time to give you all the rules for discernment, but let me give you rock-solid rule number one. God speaks to us in what is. And some doors are open in your life, and some doors aren't. Maybe God's telling you something. <laughs> People often overlook reality. We want to be dreamy and think, oh, well, you know. Now, I'm not trying to say, you know, you shouldn't think past perhaps some realities and look into the future, but listen, be careful. One of the most important ways that God speaks to us in, in, is in what He is permitting to happen in our life and in what He's not permitting. In what He is doing and what He isn't doing. Be very careful not to overlook reality. Now, there's other things, you know, as you make discernments about what God might be asking you to do. So, it might, you want to look at your state in life. Now, a woman might come to me and say, Father, I want you to be my spiritual director. I feel that I'm called to uh, have six hours of prayer before the Blessed Sacrament every day. I'm like, wow. You sound like you want to be a religious sister. Well, I can't do that. I've got six children at home. <laughs> well, it sounds like you better not be praying six hours a day either. Well, I'm sure God is telling me. It's a good thing, Father. Don't you think? I'm like, yes, it's a good thing, but God is telling you no such thing. You've got to be with your children. You're not going to spend six hours if you've got six children at home. You're going to be with them. Spend some time in prayer. Absolutely. But you see what I'm saying? So we look at our state in life. We look at our gifts, what gifts we do have and what gifts we don't have. We look at the Bible and we want to make sure that whatever our thoughts are are rooted in God's truth and His revelation. So I don't, I don't want to give a whole course on discernment right now. But what I'm trying to say to you is that don't overlook... The first thing in discernment, which is that God is first and foremost speaking to us in His written Word, but He's also speaking to us in our life, in what He's allowing and not allowing, what He is doing and not doing, and so on. So 
So your life is not just about you and what you want for you. All right. So it is sad, though, how few people today ever really speak to God about important things like careers or entering into a marriage or pondering a large project. We just go off and do what we please and we expect God to bail us out if it doesn't go well. You know, I'm, I'm surprised, you know, every now and again, I, I, I do, when couples come to me, I say, well, um, why, do you want, why do you want to get married? Well, because we're in love, Father. Well, that's nice. I've been in love. I'm not married. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? But, just you're, but you know, just being in love. I say, well, then I, go, I, I pull out the hard question. Did you ask God about it? Well, no. <laughs> why not? Or let's say you've got a big career move. It's going to involve moving your family. Do we ever even think to talk to God about that? Now, I'm not saying nobody here does, but it is, a, it is not a common thing. People just sort of go with the whims. And There was a man I knew many, many years ago, um, and um, he, he was working for IBM at the time, and that's Big Blue in those days. Remember back in the 80s and Big Blue? Man, if you worked for Big Blue, you were set for life, all right? And he was offered a job. He was a member of the Mother of God community up in Gaithersburg. And it was a, a very close-knit community of largely charismatic Catholics. And they lived in a very close-knit community. And they studied Scripture. They prayed almost every day together. And they all lived in a certain area of Gaithersburg. And um, so they called him in one day. And they said, listen, we're, we're going to give you a promotion. We're going to make you the vice president in charge of marketing on the West Coast. Whoa, maximum promotion. Vice President at Big Blue. Not just six figures, but well into the six figures. Are you praying? I was like, oh, oh. And they say, oh, well, he said, well, tell you what. Let me, let me pray about that over the weekend. Pray? You know, they kind of took off their glasses and they said, what you, what's there to pray about? You know, when you work for Big Blue, you give your life to the company. All right, I'll tell you what. Go ahead and pray. And so he came back in on Monday, and he said, no, I don't want to take it. Because, you know, I mean, well, why not? He said, well, I'm in a community now, and my kids are being supported in the faith, and my wife is growing, and I'm growing in my relationship with God, and that's just too precious. I can't walk away from that. They fired him. No, they didn't, you know, they didn't, just, they didn't say that was the reason. They said, well, we're phasing your job out, and you don't want to take the new one, so bye-bye. Basically, their thinking was, if you don't give your life to the company and Big, Big Blue isn't your first priority, we can't use you. But you see, he talked to God. And he said, look, my, my soul is more important than my income. My soul and, and my children's salvation is more important than whether they have a bigger house or my ego. Now, I, I'm not saying it was easy for him. By the way, God was good to him. He got another job. But you see the idea. Do we ever ask? When we make big moves in our life. What do you think, Lord? Now, he's not going to say, do it. Or you're not going to hear a voice, but even think of just doing some discernment. See? And an awful lot of people don't even think to do that today. All right. So again, your life is not about you. Now, with all that in mind, we often go off on these crazy plans and then, you know, things don't go well. Because God never asked us to do it. And he said, well, here I am trying so hard to do a good thing down here. And, and God says, I never asked you to do it. Well, it's a good thing. He says, I know it's a good thing. I didn't ask you to do it. So how quickly we get resentful and angry 
when we go off on our own things and we just think God's going to bless it. Now, here's a good little thing a priest friend of mine once said at a retreat or a revival we were preaching together. He said, we're always asking God, bless what we're doing, Lord. Right here, Lord, bless what we're doing. Just sign on the dotted line and don't forget to initial at all the points. Bless what we're doing, Lord. Please, Lord, bless what we're doing. When do we ever say, Lord, what are you blessing? And I'll go do that. See? Your life is not just about you, what you want to do, and your preferences. And that's a hard truth. To humbly go before God and say, what is it that you want me to do? See? And what happens to us, though, is because we, ha we don't learn this hard truth, that when everything doesn't just go according to our plans, I'm going to marry so-and-so, and I'm going to live in such-and-so a house, and, and we're going to you know, have 1.3 children, and, and then it doesn't go that way. She dumps you, and you're, you end up, you know, your life doesn't just follow your little agenda. And so quickly, we're angry and resentful and bitter and... And because we haven't learned the hard truth. It's a hard truth, but if we learn it, it sets us free. That we freely go before God and say, I'm your servant, you know, just teach me, teach me. Our serenity is greater when we prayerfully discern that place that God has for us and we humbly seek His will, accepting the fact that we are not simply masters of our own destiny. We are not captains of our own ship. If God is your co-pilot, shift seats. Right? That's not your co-pilot. He's your pilot. All right? You got that, right? Okay. Um, he says here, uh, it says here, just humbly accepting the truth that my life is not simply about me and what I want is a truth that sets me free. This is true because we often don't get what we want. See? And hence, uh, um, if I can allow my life more to unfold rather than to try to control and manipulate every outcome, it's going to be a lot easier. In fact, one of the signs of serenity is an increasing capacity to let life unfold rather than to control and manipulate the outcomes. You're heading for a lot of anxiety and a lot of grief and a lot of anger and disappointment if you want to control all these outcomes. Your life, hard truth number two, your life is not simply about you and what you want. Your life is about what God wants and what God made you for and what, where your role is in, in His plan. Okay? All right. <clears throat> Number three. Uh-oh. You're not in control. You are not in control. Now, again, we are more able in our modern world to control a lot of things that they couldn't control long ago. So we're more into this illusion than people maybe hundreds of years ago were. Now, everybody's always tried to be in control, but you get the point. We have the, the illusion is much deeper for us because we do have other things being equal through our technologies, the capacity to control a lot more things than we used to. All right? But listen, at the end of the day, control is an illusion. You have your plans for tomorrow, so do I. But it's based on stuff that you can't control. Like the next beat of your heart. Like the very next beat of your heart. Okay? So you see the idea that although we may think we've got everything lined up and I had my notes all you know, printed up here, you know, and I did get here alive, that's good. But I might not have. It could have been an accident. You know, we've all, you know, we all know some people just mysteriously die in their sleep. They drop dead. It's very, we're not in control. Are you following me? You are not in control. Now look, again, 
Control is something of an illusion. You and I may have plans for tomorrow, but there are many things between now and tomorrow that I, over which I have no control. Again, um, now, look there at the inset. Because we think, though, we control a few things, we think that we can control many things. Not really. Not really. Our attempts to control and manipulate outcomes are comical, if not hurtful. All right? Thinking that uh, we can control many things leads us to think that we must control them, and that, in turn, is the source of most of your anxiety. This is the source of most of your anxiety. In fact, just look at the big picture. We have never been able to control as much as we have. We've never been so wealthy, so resourceful, with so many options, and yet we have never been so anxious. Most people, I don't know what their exact percentages are, but a little, little more than 40% of people are on psychotropic medicines just to keep their anxiety under control. Add to that another, another 30% that have terrible sleeping disorders. All right? We've never been so much in control, and yet we've never been so anxious. Father Robert Barron, Bishop Barron now, always had that beautiful in, insight that you can always tell a city by its buildings. Now, if you went back to a medieval city, the tallest and the biggest building was the church. Go maybe a few hundred years into the future and you start to see that the, big, the biggest buildings were the palaces and the, and the government buildings, you know. And so you start to see this preoccupation with settled and centralized governments and as you begin to get into the Renaissance and beyond. And now you come to the modern cities and you find that the three tallest buildings in Chicago are all owned by insurance companies. Even the, what, the building that was built when I was there uh, the Sears Tower, when I was a kid, it was being built, it was called the Sears Tower because it was owned by a company that sold products. Now it's owned, it's called the Willis Tower. It's, the, it's an insurance company from England. Likewise, the John Hancock building, and I forget the third one, but they're all three of them. Standard, the old Standard Oil building and the old Sears Tower are now insurance companies along with the John Hancock building. Shows you what our interest is, isn't it? We're very anxious. What's the thing most of us, after our, maybe, you know, some, some of our basic food needs, but the biggest thing, health insurance. We've never lived so long and so healthy, and yet we've never been so anxious about health. Oh, you shouldn't eat that. That might, that might hurt you. That might cause cancer. Ooh, ooh. Oh, gosh. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, that red meat can cause cancer. I said, life causes cancer. <laughs> now, I'm not saying be reckless, but we're really anxious people. We're very, very anxious. And you notice that as our ability to control has gone up, our anxiety has not gone down. It's gone up. We always think that if I could just be more in control, I would be less anxious. No. You'd be more anxious. Because control is ultimately an illusion. You really cannot say that tomorrow Everything will be fine because I've got all the switches in the right place. You really, and deep down you know that, right? So continuing on with my notes, again, we usually think if we're going to be in control, we'll be less anxious. This is not true. We are more anxious. The more we think we can control, the more we try to control, and thus the greater our burdens and our anxieties. You see, if you, if you can control a few more things, now you're expected to control them, and your life begins to get very out of control very fast because you're expected to have everything under control, right? This course causes frustration and fear. We would be freer and less anxious if we would simply accept the fact that there are many things, in fact most things, over which we have little or no control. 
Our expectation of everything being under our control is unrealistic. It comes, life comes at you fast, and brooding over unpredictable things and uncontrollable matters is a form of bondage. Anxiety is one of the bigger forms of bondage that we have today in our culture, right? Simply accepting that I'm not often in control is freeing. Now, I went through a period in my mid-30s of uh, anxiety disorder. I was, I was, it was so bad that I was hospitalized. I was in the psych ward for a week. You know, I had a big major nervous breakdown, and I was, uh, anyway, they gave me my diagnosis, and I got to work. But it was a long journey out of anxiety, and the real key was trust, learning to trust God, letting life unfold, be, accepting the fact that I wasn't going to control a lot of things. See, what had happened to me was I had grown up in a home that was alcohol, had a, alcoholism was in the home, and a lot of things were unpredictable. So as a kid, my way of handling the unpredictability was to seize control of as many things as I could. I kept my room clean. My mother gave me the kitchen to clean. I kept it clean and orderly every fork, every knife. It was my little way of asserting some, some kind of sanity some kind of predictability and control in a house that was out of control often and unpredictable. Now that works when you're a little kid and all you got to do is keep your room clean and maybe keep the kitchen clean or do your chores. But as you start to get older and you get more things, more duties, you're not going to do that. It's just too much to have everything perfect. Well, I was appointed a pastor of a very poor and troubled parish that was out of control. And... I broke down because I went in there thinking I have to control. I have to bring this whole thing under control. I've got to get it under control. There's an old gospel song that says, God said I got this, so you let go. <laughs> but I, I wasn't in that space. And so I ended up with a nervous breakdown. They, I mean, I'm, I'm kidding when I say, but they found me hanging in the ceiling fan one morning. And uh, I, got, I got, shall we say, brought to the psych ward and uh, got to spend a week there getting evaluated. But anyway, I got over it, thank God. But how? Again, it was a journey in trust. Learning that I'm not in control. But when, so I remember I came to the psychotherapist at the, uh, when I started outpatient psychotherapy, and I met the head therapist, and he said, Charles, he said, why are you here? I said, Kenise, I've come here because I want to get my life back under control. I never want to have happened to me what happened to me before. He laughed, and he said, I've got to take you inpatient, man. <laughs> Until you get over that idea that you're going to control all this stuff, you'll never be well. I thought to myself, well, that's crazy. I'm walking, this is a lunatic asylum. I guess, well, actually it is. Uh, uh, <laughs> but but I, I thought, you know, this is crazy talk. But again, I've come to find out exactly what he meant. See? Now, look, other things being equal, you do your duties. You line up what you need to line up for tomorrow. You know, set out your clothes. You know, you have your plans. But... Have a very trusting understanding that it may not all go like you planned, but that's going to be all right. In fact, I've learned in my life, as I hope some of you have too, that things don't usually go exactly the way I plan, and they don't often go the way I want. Maybe sometimes they go well, and sometimes they don't, but at the end of the day, God's always taken good care of me. And things generally are okay. There's individual things we all want to be better, but somewhere along the line, I can, I've learned to trust in God. And that's a source of great serenity. But you've got to let go of the illusion that you're going to be in control. You're not. God is in control. And you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but He lets things fail. 
He lets things go wrong sometimes. He doesn't. He, he allows imperfections. Like me. I'm an imperfection. Are you? He allowed me, though. Well, he'll do. <laughs> you know, God's kind of relaxed about a lot of things. And God leaves a lot of things unresolved, and he doesn't rush to solve every problem immediately, does he? And there's a reason for it. I don't know what it is all the time, but God has his reasons. We, we could all think of 80 things in this crazy lunatic culture that we're living in. Come on, God, zap us! What's, what are you waiting for? But he is, and he has his reasons. Now, don't become a quietist. You do your duty, teach your children, keep working, but you leave the big things to God. Who's going to turn the church around? Who's going to turn the culture around? Who's going to work on the Supreme Court issue? Leave it to God. There's a lot of things we just got to leave to God. All right. Now, so we see that uh, this, this one about control is a big one. It's a big one because, again, but if you learn this lesson, you're not in control, you're going to find that you're free of a lot of things. Five hard truths that'll set you free. Learning that you're not in control feels like a hard truth at first. But as you begin to lay hold of it, and you say, well, this thing is working all right. Leaving some of this stuff to God and letting things kind of unfold. And sometimes things actually go better if I don't interfere. And we start to learn and we grow and we begin to be set free. So, well, uh, I, gotta, I don't see a clock in the room, so I'm looking at, my, looking at my, what do you call this thing, this Fitbit? Oh, I'm almost at 10,000 already. And I haven't even taken my walk. Okay. Well, as usual, I'm running later than I want. But let's continue on. Here comes a very, very hurtful one. You are not that important. You are not that important. Now, we live in this self-esteem culture, and this one hits hard. In fact, usually when I read the five, the one that people most react to, you almost see a visible, especially, you know, the younger ones, you're not that important. Oh, God. that's like, to hear those words come out of a priest's mouth? This one hurts. I thought the whole world should revolve around me. I thought it was only my feelings that mattered and my well-being that was important. But truth be told, we are loved by God in a very particular way, but that does not overrule the fact that I must often yield to others who are also loved by God. Uh-oh. See? The truth is that sometimes other people are just more important than me at a certain moment. I might even be called to give my life so that someone else might live. Soldiers do that. Police officers, firefighters are going into burning buildings while we're getting out of them. There are just times when other people's lives are more important in that moment than mine. But Father, but Father, I didn't want it to rain for my daughter's wedding and it rained. Doesn't God care? Well, God might have something bigger in mind than just your happiness. Maybe the farmers needed rain. I remember one time, I, I'm not saying God told me this like I heard it out of the ceiling, but it, God really put it in my heart one year. Please tell the people, I don't do weather requests and I don't do sports requests. <laughs> oh, we're praying for the right team to win. <clears throat> we all know what that team is, don't we, God? Okay. Okay, but the truth, it's, it's a hard truth, isn't it? But ideally, older people will often give their life for children, younger people, you know. Um, 
Ideally, again, there are just people who put their life on the line. You know, every, every year we celebrate Memorial Day and Veterans Day, and we honor men and women who put their life on the line so that we can live in greater security and freedom. Likewise, the police. They put themselves into harm's way every day. The firefighters, even paramedics, others, first responders, our Coast Guard, all of our military. Just an amazing number of people who put their life on the line so that we can live in greater security and freedom. See? So again, I must often yield then to others whose needs are more crucial than mine at a given moment. The world does not just simply exist for me and what I want now. Now there's a great freedom and a peace to come in accepting this. We are often made so anxious if we are not recognized. There it went, 10,000. It just hit 10,000 right here. My little, you know, those of you who wear the Fitbit know this. It, it tells you, you've hit 10,000. It, 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 it vibrates. Um, there is this, um, there's a great freedom and a peace that comes in accepting that the whole world doesn't just revolve around me. We're often made so anxious if we're not recognized. Uh, or others, uh, you know, or others, or if our feelings uh, and preferences are not everybody else's priority, accepting the truth that I'm not that important allows me to relax a little bit and enjoy caring about other people and celebrating their importance too. Okay. So again, um, we live in a culture that's hypersensitive. Of, oh, my, my feelings have been hurt. Well, so what? Very often, you know, people who talk about, you know, being sensitive to the feelings of others are not very sensitive to the feelings of traditional Catholics. You know, they're in your faith. How dare you? You're, you know, they call us names. And so they, they want us to have all this respect for their feelings, but they're not very sensitive to the feelings of the faith of traditional Catholics. You see, people are very selective in our culture, but I'm just going to say that there are just going to be times where my feelings are not the be-all and end-all, of what everybody should respect. By the way, you know, sometimes you're going to upset people when you speak things and teach. If you're a parent, if you're a preacher, a teacher, if you just are witnessing. But remember this truth, just because someone's upset with you doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Jesus got a lot of people upset with him. Did he do anything wrong? No. He never sinned. But you see, there's kind of this primitive part of our brain that if somebody's angry or upset, oh, I must have done something wrong. And so a lot of us shut down and we're not preaching and teaching with clarity and charity. Because we're in this kind of culture where my feelings, are, you know, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Well, feelings have their place. But again, no tension, no change. Sometimes we have to get in there and say some of these hard things and say, well, look, you know, you're not that important. Your feelings are not the only thing that matter in this. The fact that you feel like your feelings or your thoughts or your opinions should be respected is a lovely idea. And other things being equal, let's try to let that happen, but, uh, you know, but it's not always possible. You are not that important. And so all of these are just ways of saying that at times we live in a culture, though, that wants to elevate the importance of every single individual and their feelings, and if somebody's crying, we're all supposed to yield. And uh, no... No, that isn't true. So it's not just a truth for me, but it's also a truth to proclaim to others that somewhere we have to do and say what is right, even if somebody's feelings are upset or hurt, and hope they'll come along with us eventually and figure it all out. Okay? Too many parents are just horrified that their child might not be their best friend or might have their feelings hurt or might be upset. Yeah. 
So again, some of this, this particular one points to that feelings and self-esteem culture and easily wounded. We're very thin-skinned and egotistical in our culture today. And we have to learn to yield to truths that are proclaimed, even though they might offend or upset us at first. They have to still be proclaimed, you see. All right. Last one, you're going to die. You're going to die. Um, okay, it's a hard truth, but it is very freeing. You know, we get all worked up about what this world dishes out. But take a walk in the cemetery. Hmm? Take a walk. Those folks are all worked up too. Now look, their struggles are over. And if they were faithful, they're with God. And they now experience the truth that trouble don't last always. Now this truth helps us to do the, the most important thing, which is to get ready to meet God. Okay? We talked about this last week. The ashes mean you are going to die, and you don't get to say when. So what are you doing to get ready to meet God? See? Oh, well, don't tell people that, Father. It might upset them. Let me repeat myself then. You are going to die, and you don't get to say when. What are you doing to get ready to meet God? And um, again, we, so many people spend their lives clowning around and goofing off. Yet the most urgent priority is to prepare to meet God. In the end, this is freeing because we're loosed from the many excessive and contrary demands of the world and we concentrate on doing the one thing necessary. Our life simplifies and we don't take this world too seriously. It is passing away. You didn't get the promotion. God's not going to worry about well you got the promotion to the judgment seat. He wants you to know what you did with the gifts you already do have. See? And so we always want to say, well, my life is over. I didn't, something didn't go my way. Listen. What are we, maybe 80 years. Our lives are 70 or 80 for those who are strong. And some of us make it into our 80s. But listen, it's over like that, right? Come on. I'm only in my mid-50s. But I'm going to tell you, man, I feel like I just got out of high school. I mean, life goes fast. We're all worked up about this. I didn't this get this. I didn't do, get to do that or what have you. But honestly, you're going to die. Trouble don't last always. So there's something strangely freeing about accepting this truth. And that life here is very brief. And it's, uh, it's not things and troubles don't last always. Now, with that in mind, though, I want to say that... Um, uh, we also, I think, you know, I, I brought some other material with me, or maybe I didn't. Let's see where, oh, maybe it's in this stack of stuff. Yeah, here we are. I, I think that um, we um, have a, the way Paul puts it is, because <clears throat> you see, again, our lives are too complicated. We, we have too many things going on. And Paul kind of simplifies it. He says, this one thing I do. He says, I press on to the high prize marked out for me in Christ Jesus my Lord, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what is ahead. So Paul says, this one thing I do. Can you say that about your life? Book of James says, the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Well, are you double-minded? Most of us are not just double-minded, we're like octillion-minded. We're... We had 10,000 thoughts and things and we got all kinds of things pulling us in different directions. And part of the reason is because we've lost a real sense of our goal. I'm going to die. And my goal in life is that I want to die loving God and my neighbor. Because that's what's going to get me home. 
Everything I do now is focused on that one goal. I want to die loving God and my neighbor, and I want to go home and be with God forever. That's what I want. And everything I do is rooted in that. So always, always, I've got lying in front of me the fact that I am going to die. It's a kind of a unifying principle. And we stop becoming obsessed with a world that's passing away. It's passing away. St. Paul says, the things that are visible are passing away. The things that are invisible last forever. But we're all focused on the visible. We're worried about how much money we have, or who got the raise, or who got the job, or who won the election, or who... Now, look, other things being equal, do your work in this world. But don't lose your sense of priority. That your real goal is the kingdom of God and being with Him forever. But too many people aren't thinking this way today. We've taken death and we put it in nursing homes. We've hidden it away in hospitals. People go away to die. Okay, now I'm not saying, look, if, I understand nursing care is needed today. You know, the kind of care that people expect cannot always be provided at home. So I'm not here to make personal judgment. I'm just saying in our culture, death has been moved to the peripheries. And it's a strange form of therapy that some people are recommending now. You know, when life gets tough, just sign out. Where are you going to go? Well, it doesn't matter. I just, I just stop existing. See? But at the end of the day, you're going to die. Your life is in God's hands. You don't get to say when. And then, after you die, comes the judgment. Comes the judgment. So that's why that question is important. What are you doing to get ready to meet God? Now, I want to read you um, something that was... Uh, it's, a, it's a prayer. It's actually a song that was written, and it used to be in the funeral liturgies, and it was removed from the Western Rite. Uh, about 1970. Uh, but when I, when I die, would you please have it sung at my funeral? Dies ire, dies ila. Salvat seclum in favila, teste david cum sibila. I'll give you the translation. By the way, it's a great rap song. It has a perfect iambic pentameter, you know. Dies ire, dies ila. Salvat seclum in favila, teste david cum sibila. I don't know if you ever heard the, the Jesus rap. When I was in seminary, we came up with the Jesus rap. It went... Well, I like Jesus. I think he's really fine. That's why I worship him all the time. Our Father in the morning, a Bible verse at noon. And if you join me now, you go to heaven soon. <laughs> Something about, you know, there's other verses. You know, the thing about Jesus, he's high above the rest. That's why I wear this cross on my chest. He leads me to the Father. I'm so glad I could clap. So won't you join me now and do the Jesus rap? You know. <laughs> all right. Other verses, but I won't. <laughs> But anyway, the same kind of basic meter of the Diazire. But anyway, all that to say, it got, it got, it went into disfavor because it said, it spoke about death as a gloomy thing. Well, death is gloomy! And judgment is something to be sober about. But this is not simply gloomy and anxious about judgment. I want to read you the whole thing. It's a quick, it's, it goes quicker than you might think. And I'll comment as we go. But it's a beautiful hymn about death and judgment that creates a holy fear in us, but then it shows us the basis of which we can hope. So it starts out, Day of wrath and doom impending, heaven and earth and ashes ending, David's words with the sibyls blending. Oh, what fear man's bosom rendeth, when from heaven the judge descendeth, on whose sentence all dependeth. And wondrous sound the trumpet flingeth, through earth's sepulchres it ringeth, and all before the throne it bringeth. Death is struck and nature quaking. All creation is awaking to its judge and answer making. 
Lo, the book exactly worded wherein all has been recorded, then shall judgment be awarded. And when the judge his seat attaineth, and each hidden deed arraigneth, nothing unavenged remaineth. What shall I, frail man, be pleading? Who for me be interceding when the just are mercy needing? Now that sets up, if you will, a kind of a sobering anxiety about approaching death and judgment. But now the hymn turns direction and it makes a case for the hope in God's mercy. It simply says here, King of majesty tremendous, who does free salvation send us? O oh, font of pity, then befriend us. Think, kind Jesus, my salvation, cause your wondrous incarnation, leave me not to reprobation. O oh, faint and weary thou hast sought me, on the cross of suffering brought me, or bought me, shall such grace be vainly brought to me. O oh, righteous judge for sin's pollution, grant me your gift of absolution before the day of retribution. Guilty now, I pour my moaning, all my shame, my anguish owning, but spare, O oh God, my suppliant groaning, for through the sinful Mary shriven, in other words, Magdalene, thou to, to me, uh, through the dying thief forgiven, thou to me a hope has given. Oh, worthless are my tears and sighing, yet, good Lord, in grace complying, rescue me from fire undying. And when your sheep, with your sheep a face provide me, and from the goats afar divide me, and to thy right hand do thou guide me. For when the wicked are confounded and doomed to flames of woe unbounded, call me with your saints surrounded. Lo, I kneel in heart submission, see my ashes like my contrition, Help me in my last condition. O oh, lo, that day of tears and mourning, when the dust of earth returning, man for judgment must prepare him. Spare, O oh God, in mercy spare him. And then comes one of the most beautiful lines of all. P.A.A.S. Udomine, Dona Eis Requiem. O oh, sweet Jesus, grant them eternal rest. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a sober meditation on death, but it's also struck with all kinds of hope and biblical reminders of how good and merciful God is to those who call on Him and ask for His mercy. So, I don't plan to die anytime soon, but if I do, make sure. Dies ire dies ila salvet seclum in favila teste davi cum sibila. There's a lot of so many beautiful, if you will, you know, we so run away from death in our culture, but you know, if you're faithful, the day you die is the greatest day of your life. Now, you might have to go through a period of purgation, but if you're faithful, the day you die is the greatest day of your life. Finally, <laughs> go leave this lunatic asylum and go home. And you know, a lot of the old Negro spirituals and a lot of the old songs that came out of the deep south, out of the slave condition, spoke to, you know, one of them said, Soon it will be done with the troubles of this world, going home to live with God. I want to see my Jesus. I want to live with God. Soon I will be done with the troubles of this world. Another old hymn just says, Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. Oh, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away.
Another song just says, Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Thank God Almighty. This old hymn goes on, Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away to a land where joys will never end. Oh, I'll fly away. I'll fly away. You know, I'm not asking you to become suicidal. <laughs> Other things being equal, we have a normal or natural aversion to death, or at least the process of dying. But if you are faithful, run toward that day. St. Francis in the Canticle of the Sun spoke of death as a kind and gentle friend coming to hush our, latest, our last breath and to take us out of this painful world home to God. See? So again, there's this... There should be this yearning, this longing, and this die. You know, so when, when it says you are going to die, it doesn't just mean to confront you and make you, you know, but it also means to remind you, don't be too anxious about this crazy thing that we're going, this this world that we're in. It's crazy. It's crazy down here. This is not home. This we're living out of a suitcase. This is exile. This is a valley of tears. This is paradise lost. Don't be too obsessed with it. Make your way, try to make it a little better, a little more comfortable for the person after you. But at the end of the day, this ain't it. Heaven is. Beautiful old hymn, i just try to wrap up with a little bit, but I don't have time to read all the verses, but I read this to my father as he lay dying. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, Help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. But thou who changest not, abide with me. Not a brief glance, I beg, but a, pass, or a passing word. But as thou dwell with thy disciples, Lord, Familiar, condescending, patient, free. Come not to sojourn, but come to abide with me. Come not in terrors as the King of kings, but kind and good with healing in thy wings. Tears for all woes, a heart for every plea. Come friend of sinners and abide with me. Abide with me. And then the last verse I'll just read. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee in life, in death. O oh Lord, abide with me. Then there's that beautiful hymn for all the saints. I'll just have to quote it from memory, but it basically just says that, it says, um, and when the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear a distant triumph song, and hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. Hallelujah. And then it says, uh, and when the golden evening brightens in the west, soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Oh, sweet is the rest of paradise, so blessed. Hallelujah. Beautiful hymn for all the saints. Those are the, some of the final verses you never get to. Because in the Catholic Church we sing four verses and we're done, right? Those are the sixth, seventh, and eighth verses I was quoting. <laughs> well, listen, I've gone on, but five hard truths. They're hard, but they're freeing. They're hard, but they're free. Life is hard. But it's all right. It's short, too. Life is hard. Your life's not about you. You're not in control. You're not that important. And you're going to die. Hard truths. The ashes, if you will. But from those ashes comes a kind of detachment and a beauty and a reverence 
that we begin to have for God and a, sort of keeping this world in perspective. So there's a, a passing quality to this life. It goes quickly. And God just simply says, hold on to my unchanging hand. So bless you all for your patience. And I know I'm a loud mouth and it takes a, lot, it takes a long time to listen to me, doesn't it? <laughs> but uh, thank you again for your patience. And we're going to have our instructions here. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.